This is a pod. A pod about dogs. Healthy dogs. It's the healthy dog pod. Thank you to the sponsor of this season of the Healthy Dog Pod, Field Day. Field Day is an Australian-made and owned dog health and wellness brand that creates products to help your dog live the best and healthiest life, inside and out. Field Day has a range of whole food meal toppers that target the top four health concerns for dogs. Joints, digestion, anxiety, and skin. They're also really easy to use. You simply add them to the food that your dog already loves. You can also look after your dog's skin and coat health with Field Day's brand new grooming range. Field Day also donates 1% of all online profits to Pets of the Homeless. This is a charity that works to help keep vulnerable people and their pets together by alleviating the burden of providing essential pet care during times of hardship. You can shop the Field Day range online now at fieldaypet.com.au and use the code HDP10 for 10% off site-wide. That's HDP10 for 10% off. Now it's time to get to the show. Hi guys, and welcome to the Healthy Dog Pod. We've got myself and Sophie as always, and today we're joined with Andy Howe from the UK. Welcome, mate. Hi Ian, thanks for having me along. Uh, oh, pleasure, mate. It's uh, I've been loving your work lately, all over Beyond the Opera and your social media. So, thanks for joining us. Um, I'd love you to just open with just a little bit about yourself and uh, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, okay, right. So um, I'm currently a, a certified animal behaviourist over here in the in the UK. Work primarily with dogs, uh, but before that, um, I've got a human psychology background. So um, yeah, after leaving university, I worked in human therapy for about. 15 years I guess 18 years uh, before I came into the wonderful world of animals so uh, that's the one thing that I've always found interesting and that's what we're going to kind of discuss and unpack a little bit today I guess is the the role of the what I uh, kind of frame as the emotional experience because uh, and it it might be worth just referencing what that is before we kind of start I guess (laughs) We all share a lot neurologically and physiologically, biologically, uh, and actually we share a lot of those things with our with our animal buddies, right? Because uh, they have very similar, uh, especially physiology uh, and biology, and uh, quite comparable neurology to a point. Um, but the thing that uh, is unique and personal is about how we all process and internalize and uh, have sensations of those things that are produced through the neurology and physiology and that is the emotional experience right so us three in the room together we're all abstract normal whatever that means uh, abstract normal human beings right uh, and we share a lot neurologically physiologically but our emotional experience will be unique to us and one of the things that get, has been said in the past not just with dogs but with animals in general is well, we don't know what they feel, um, you know, emotions is a bit subjective. So we're just going to dis- discard that a little bit and we're going to focus on just what we can do with behaviour. But I wouldn't even dare to guess or, or suppose that I know your emotional experience, Ian, or yours, Sophie. So that, but that doesn't stop me from 
wanting to find out more or to learn more about what I class as your truth. And I think we're at a stage now with our companion animals that we have to start thinking about how we can get a better understanding of their truth. Yeah. Yeah. The truth of the dog in front of us. So that's kind of the emotional experience. Yeah, it's not necessarily, it's not about anthropomorph, what's the word? But it is it, it is about there is something that we can relate to on that and that and they do go through that emotional experience. So I think there's as much danger in I'm I, I still not gonna be able to say it, over anthropomorphizing the dog, I got it right. And as there is completely disregarding their emotional experience, it's definitely relatable. And you know, like you said, in the dog training world, a lot of a lot of the time when we're talking about modifying behavior, a lot of what we talk about is the observable behavior that looking at it through that ABA lens. But from the client's perspective, that probably hasn't studied ABA. Um, they're looking at it probably very much through how that dog is experiencing things emotionally. And the emotional experience the client's going through when they contact us is something unique to them as well. So I think it does have a really important role. So it's just a few things just to unpack from that. So about five years ago, maybe a little bit more, there was a big anti-anthropomorphic movement because there was uh, a perception <clears throat> that people were treating, in the way we're talking about dogs specifically, that people were treating their dogs like little furry children, right? Um, but the baby that, gets, that got thrown out with the bathwater there was this notion that somehow by not seeing dogs as little people, we are also gonna discard their feelings and emotions and their, their emotional need and the emotional drive. Uh, and I think that is a big issue because when we think about behavior, this is what I try to bring to the discussion really. So it's quite a philosophical view of behavior. I package it as inviting people to think that actually there's only two types of behavior. There is the behavior we judge in others and the behavior we do ourselves, right? So this is really important because if we think about the behavior we do ourselves, I would invite people listening in now to think about the last time they had to really think about controlling their own behavior. And there's a couple of important points about this. The first is that the answer to that is probably not very often because we just do, right? Behavior is an expression of self. Our behavior is as unique to us as the clothes we wear, the way we have our hair cut, right? The way that we need to express through our behavior is really important. The second part of that is when we do think about times where we have to be really mindful of behavior and, and, and have a sense of self-control over it, there is, there is often times when we feel most uncomfortable, all right, because it's quite stressful. Uh, we can think back, most people can relate to this back to school days, of course, because of the way that the structured education system is designed and the expectations put on children's behavioral output. Uh, in the workplace, of course, there are expectations based upon us. And some of those expectations are, are um, 
uh, valid, of course. You know, we shouldn't be bullying in the workplace. We should be respectful. Some of the things in the workplace, especially sadly, when we think about traditionally how women are seen in the workplace and the things that they should and shouldn't do, the things they should or shouldn't wear and all these kind of things, it starts to become a little bit more, hmm. Uh, but also people recognize this sense of uh, external pressure, arbitrary control, sadly in some relationships. So this isn't the essence of it, behavior. We don't know enough potentially about, uh, when we think about dogs specifically, almost from the moment they come into our lives, traditionally we have been looking at micromanaging that behavior output we have decided arbitrarily that is acceptable this is right that is wrong that is good that is bad this is what we expect from a dog uh we don't know enough about what that does potentially to that dog's emotional experience about trying to express through a behavior that okay we find inappropriate but to them is very important so i think this is the crux of it um and it's a lot to unpack and to get our heads around guys i, I get that um we do have but we have we have developed a heavily opera model around dogs mm -hmm. now i could do a whole hour on just the history of that right because there is a very much a timeline about that came about but that kind of got us to a point where we, the zeitgeist was the dominance model, which fitted quite nicely with a more of an aversive approach because it was very much about control and coercion. The more modern step forwards, or, or moving on, as I call it, not necessarily moving forwards, is starting to use positive reinforcement, which is really important, really important uh, that we recognize that. But um, we've still inherited a system which is still about predominantly arbitrarily changing controlling and creating behaviors based on a human narrative yeah yeah and that's what we've got to start thinking about and it's interesting you say about owners because the other thing so that the first part of that was the behavior we do ourselves <laughs> when we, just, when the, just the first part to unpack there that was great well, when yeah. we think about the behavior ourselves, it's, we know how complicated it is. That's the point. You know, we, behavior is complicated. And we also know that we do stuff based on how we feel, right? So behavior is emotionally driven. It's how you feel about stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there, especially with dogs, that somehow the environment dictates everything. Well, there might be environmental triggers, but how that emotional experience connects to that trigger is important because, you know, uh, the trigger itself per se is not necessarily the thing. It's how the brain has decided or put value onto something. The other part of that kind of two-sided thing was with the behavior we judge in others. And it's really important we understand that because the human brain uh, likes to create a worldview. It likes to create a belief system, a value system that uh, it can kind of hang its hat onto really because the brain doesn't want to have to keep cognitively reappraising all the time because it will be knackering, right? You know, yeah. do I like coffee? Don't I like coffee? Do I, do I like cornflakes? Don't I like cornflakes? Like, no, I like them, I'll have it, or I don't like them. <laughs> the problem with that is as soon as that worldview has been created, the brain wants to protect that worldview. So it starts to create cognitive distortions and cognitive biases, like belief filters, if you like. And this is the big challenge, of course, because, oh, there's so many things here, guys. It's just, it's just a big thing. But as soon as we're born if you like we are we are coming into a conformist system we just are we most of us go through a structured educational system most of us uh, are living in a society where there are 
uh, laws and uh, social cohesion and all these kind of things. So uh, we are designed then in many ways to have this idea of behavior being on a continuum of good to bad. So a lot of our clients then, they've already in their heads, they think this dog is bad. Or the behavior is bad, I should say. The mind, the, mind, the dog's bad. But, that, but they, and the, the big one is uh, this is why one of the talks I give is rethinking the naughty dog, because we use the word naughty a lot. It ought to be naughty. Um, a lot of these labels, of course, come from how the kind of psychology behind uh, children and how we want to label them and how we want to kind of fit them into a conformist model. That's another thing. So this is important. So when we go and see a client, quite often they already feel based upon that quick thinking as we call it that the dog's bad the bad dog's bad behavior but what you alluded to Ian is right because what I found is once clients hear something a bit different their heart if you like is telling them actually my dog's struggling emotionally but they don't have necessarily the narrative to frame around that when society is saying my dog's being dominant, my dog's being naughty, that dog's being bad. We've got a TV show over here called Dogs Behaving Badly. Uh, uh, and it just fits into all this kind of narrative. Really. So, uh, so th this is why it's important to think about things differently uh, we, and also to recognise why we have that quick thinking, why as soon as we start to have a worldview, we create expectations and judgments around that. As soon as those expectations aren't being met, we are prone to want to control change and coerce behavior. It's just, it's just, a, just the reality, the psychology of how things are. So mm. I get it why clients have gone down an aversive route or um, you know, have, have kind of seen stuff on telly and thought, well, I'll try that. But we've got to start yeah. thinking about things differently. And what we've got to recognize from a positive reinforcement point of view is if we're just turning up to see a client and we're saying, oh yeah, yeah, we, we don't want that behavior, um, we don't, do that anymore because that's outdated and it's cruel or whatever it is we want to say we do this now what we've got to think about is there is a good chance if we just go in with that narrative that the client is thinking still behavior bad must change it and then if we through our positive reinforcement techniques don't change it based on their expectations there's a chance they will still go down to the shop doc down the road who still does behavior bad Let's change it. So my argument is, if we start thinking about the emotional experience more and unpacking that more, we can do that, uh, and having that as the platform of our education to clients, we don't need to go into all the that's bad, we don't do things that anymore. If they attach to their dog's emotional experience through their own emotional experience, because the beautiful thing about the emotional experience, we all have one. We all have one, right? Then they're more likely, and, and the words we use uh, to frame things, so I use the word care instead of owner, I use the word sensitive instead of reactive, all these kind of things can really help them because um, we've got to help them to be a more aware caregiver about that dog's emotional need. Yeah. Something like to just, just pull that point out a little bit further, something that I will always consider and, it, and it's it's come with time uh spent in this role as a dog trainer um that i probably lacked the confidence to do when i was in my early years but something i will do all the time nowadays is not shy away from asking the question not just whether or not i can change the behavior and how i should do that but 
whether or not I should try. Because if, I'll, I'll start asking questions like, should the dog even be there? Should we be trying to manipulate the dog's behavior in that environment? Because ultimately I'm asking, is the dog so compromised that yeah, I don't blame him for his behavior? <laughs> it's um, there's so many and, and that comes around from uh social social expectations and social norms that people will already have in their head before they've even got a dog such as i must do this i must get him used to the dog park i he must be social with all dogs he must go for two walks a day and all of these preconceived ideas so when when, when i'm working with a client I'm, I'm at first I'm, I'm going to information gather. I'm going to go, okay, where does, where does this person see, uh, where does, where does this dog fit in this person's life? What, what are the expectations of this dog? Because a lot of the time the initial conversation is around setting those expectations and making sure that not only, not only the dog set up for success, but also the client as a, yeah. as a client, I'm, I want to make sure that I'm putting them in a position where they're likely to see uh, achievable results. But let's look at, let's evaluate what success looks like for them and the dog first. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> I love that last bit, the last little bit there, because um, part of the crux of this is deciding what results are what criteria we set results to. And this is part of the big kind of uh, discussion that, that I think we need to have because the trouble with an opera model only is that results are based upon behavioral output. The either the decrease of uh, a behavior or the increase of a behavior, and it's as simple as that. But the question we have to ask is, whatever behavior change we give, does it have any internal value to the dog? Or are we just getting them to do something else instead? And I think this is really important. And um, so, yes, we can. Uh, and, and our clients are likely initially because of the, um, the kind of psychology I was just talking about. They will have as their thing, as their kind of uh, goal for having a, a trainer come in. I don't want to see this behavior mm -hmm. uh, or I want to see a different behavior instead. We have to let's say. We don't have to, of course. Uh, I would invite people to think about getting them to be part of a process that is actually recognizing about where the behavior, the initial behavior came from in the first place, rather than just thinking about arbitrarily what we're going to replace it with. And this notion of internal value is really important. Again, I see a lot of stuff online about, yeah, but, uh, and this is on both sides of the fence, by the way. This comes from aversive trainers. It comes from positive trainers. That aversives and reinforcements are there all the time in the environment, right? Uh, totally. But there is a difference between structured learning and experimental or environmental learning. Uh, so if I was to touch the top of a hot stove and go, ow, that really hurt, right? That is experimental, environmental learning. Nobody forced my hand on it to say, right, this is what it's going to feel like. And uh, I invite people to think back to their school days again to try and remember what they learned through structured learning. We don't remember much. We remember a lot more from the experimental learning or the environmental learning. We remember how we connected with authority, how we connected with our peers, how we felt safe or not. 
uh, how we felt um, uh, able to kind of process social engagement. That's the kind of things. And the same for our dogs. So the behavior the dog's giving, which is seen as a problematic behavior, is likely to actually have some internal value to that dog. And the way it, it's very authentic for them because they're going through something. If we just arbitrarily replace it with another behavior, because we can, especially when we think about uh, mutually exclusive behaviors or um, um, uh, what's it called? or incompatible behaviors that we call them. You know, so if I get the, if I train the dogs to do that, they can't do this when they're doing that because the two are incompatible. We have to wonder about what internal value that new behavior might have, because the most important word for me in the psychology of behavior is the word relief. Right. Because as soon as we have a nervous system that is elevated, the body wants to go back to a, a baseline level through a homeostatic process. So in other words, we seek relief. So it's relief seeking, right? Uh, if there's a spider there and you don't like spiders, you want to get away from the spider, you want relief. Okay. If you've got a headache, you want relief, right? So that's the thing. So uh, the big question mark for me, uh, one of the things that's been... Uh, wrongly said about some of this beyond the opera and it is beyond not instead of I think that's really important is that especially it's been directed at me that I'm anti-training uh, or that I'm anti-opera yeah, how can you be anti-opera I don't know but anyway uh, I'm not anti-staff I think there's there's a time where we just have to ask more questions because we've got like you said Ian we've got really good at the how we're really good at the how now. There are a million books on the how. There's so many YouTubes on the how. How do we best change behavior? And there's been a rush in the industry to do it quicker. What's the fastest way to get a behavior? What's the fastest way to get a behavior that sticks? The voice that hasn't been heard in that process is the dogs. And I think that's all we're saying is, even just thinking about this thing about behavior being an authentic part of self, that we have internal value to some behaviors, there are behaviors that we think, yeah, actually that means something to me, or there are behaviors that we do because we have to. This just hasn't been discussed enough as an industry about what we're doing to dogs, all animals generally, but dogs specifically now. Uh, and we don't really know enough yet about what that might do psychologically for a dog who's like, you know, I've been trying to get relief for this. A good example of this is dogs that pull on the lead. I've used this example many times because I think it's such an important one. Um, we already decide pulling's bad and there are 101 ways to stop, uh, to, to kind of um, deal with pulling training wise, 101 tools, sadly, to do, to do that. But why was the dog pulling in the first place? Now, in my experience, almost exclusively, the dog's pulling is a result of overactive nervous system response, right? So that could be excitement, of course, but quite often because they've got generalized anxiety, they've been triggered by the traffic, whatever it is. Uh, and the poor owners, carers, they're trying to do all the stuff they've learned in training class, which is great in the village hall, right? Because the dog isn't triggered in the village hall. Uh, so, uh, and again, almost exclusively with these dogs, we've got that dog walking uh, differently on the lead by slowing things down for that dog and giving that dog's nervous system chance to come down a bit. And the risk with training sometimes is that if we want to micromanage through training, if we want to kind of have this kind of um, connected approach through training all the time, the dog's trying to process something, but we're going in saying, oh, yeah, look at this, look at this, do that, do this, do that, all, all the time. The dog's like, I'm struggling to process that at the moment. And now I'm going to try and process what you're trying to tell me as well. 
So it's just a case of thinking these through a little bit and breaking it down, I think, and, and recognizing the science is there for us. You know, the science tells us about neurology, physiology, biology is there. The emotional experience is a bit more subjective because it is unique to each individual living thing because it's about what we add value to uh, and how we feel about things. You know, um, uh, I'm pretty stoic when it comes to pain. My husband, he just has to have a little prick in his finger and he's in, he's in bed for a week, right? Uh, I shouldn't say it. Um, but this is the point. So we even pain, right? We process pain differently, don't we? Yeah. You know, just to unpack that again a little bit more, like in that example, what we're talking about there, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, is we're talking about as a trainer handling an issue that is driven by the dog's state of arousal being higher than than normal, than 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 it being relaxed, and. Whether that's through fear or excitement or anxiety or stress, to be honest, it just doesn't matter. Arousal isn't meant to be positive or negative. What we've got is a physiological response and which is very easily attached to that emotional label that somebody might attribute to it. But what we're not dealing with in that moment, just to clarify, is a dog that is really happy about something and just trying to achieve something because it likes it we're talking about dealing with an unwanted behavior because the dog is experiencing a really intense emotional experience and it's actually not in control of that emotional experience it didn't choose to go through it it's it's experiencing it and that how that makes us as the dog owner in that moment it, it could be angry it could be sympathetic it, it does vary from, from individual to individual. And that's something that we, we've got to make sure that when we're working with them, like you said, what's, what are the factors that are driving that dog's emotional experience? How does that make the, the, the owner feel? There's so many different things that we need to consider before we even consider how to change the behavior. Do we, do we need to make sure that we don't put that dog in that situation for the dog's sake? Do we, what, at what level can it, perform <laughs> like, uh, of desirable behaviors um you know what 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 are the stimulus but also should we put what, what damage is that doing to the client like when we put the client in that situation what does that trigger and does that make them tense up and and feel anger towards the dog or panic around about other dogs and these are all factors that we just need to consider as, as trainers uh, and, you know, behavior consultants. When we're working with people, I think that expectation of everybody, like of, of the clients first, putting it on us to come in and fix problem is a massive, is the problem. But then also, like I said earlier, it took me years to get the confidence to go, I'm going to take a step back from that and I'm going to ask you to, just let's just take stock let's let's evaluate this because and by and that's for me that's why i go back to this emotional experience that we're talking about is because that is that side of it that is relatable that's the side of it that we can the dog owner if we give them the space to actually feel it understand how the dog might be feeling and then we can start to relate with them it's not about not 
changing the behavior every single time. We do have to ask whether we should or what we shouldn't. But the way that for me, the access route to be able to get to that point is that creating a connection where the dog can, uh, sorry, the client can finally relate to the dog. Joel, that's really uh, beautifully put, Arian, because um, the emotional experience of the client is really important. And um, uh, we have to just tweak out the emotional experience of the client and their perceived abstract need from the dog. So coming in with an operant approach straight away fulfills the abstract need for them, uh, but they don't necessarily know what's going on and, it, and they're still finding themselves in difficult situations. They're still finding that embarrassment, guilt, frustration, all these kind of things. And um, I just want us to be more truthful about what we do really. I think this is the point because um, do I use operant uh, kind of training in, in my in the kind of things I do with my clients? Of course I do. And, and sometimes that's more for their benefit than it is for the dog sometimes. And I have to think about that. And I'm, but I'm being truthful about what we're doing. So, for example, teaching a dog to settle, right? This, this notion of settle or teaching the dog to go to a mat, you know, to settle. Um, <laughs> for me, being truthful about that is letting the client know, we're putting your dog physically over there so they're out of the way or whatever, okay? Um, uh, and they are physically lying down on the mat. What's untruthful is to say, we're creating calm in your dog. We're asking, again, your dog to settle and be relaxed because there's a big question mark over that. Just because you physically get the dog to do something does not denote a nervous system at rest. But sometimes we need to do that put the dog over there and put them in a cell that's, and that's why it's just being truthful about it this notion that somehow we're helping the dog by controlling and managing their behaviors all the time isn't necessarily right uh and uh you know we have to put a question mark over it that's all it's just a question mark. so if, if we just unpack that a little bit more um there are three core components for me that actually make up the emotional experience the bits that we know about from a science point of view First is the sensory integration process. So with the reason we have our senses is so that our brain can take on information. So we take on information through our senses and then sensory, sensory integration is how the brain processes that. And that brings us on to the second bit, which is processing. So I use my doors of the brain analogy. So if you imagine the dog's brain has lots of little doors in it, uh, we need as many doors to stay open for that dog to be able to safely and calmly and rationally process what's going on, right? What do I think about that? What do I think about? Uh, and ideally we want that processing in, a, you know, in the, uh, the ideal way is that a lot of that processing is done subconsciously because we take it for granted as abstract human, uh, abstract normal. I put the abstract in the front because what's normal? Uh, abstract normal adult human beings that over 95% of what we process, we do subconsciously because it would be exhausting otherwise. Remember, the brain doesn't want to have to keep rethinking stuff. So it's like, okay, I'll get that. So I don't have to keep rethinking about that now. It's just in my mind. So uh, the problem is pain and stress are big door closers. Big door closers. And remember, excitement is stress. It still affects the nervous system. So uh, when the dogs are in a uh, more kind of aroused if you want to use that term state we're already losing some doors so they're less likely to process what's going on 
Uh, and then the final bit is the nervous system. Now, of course, the nervous system is part of the brain as well, but seeing it just as a separate entity, just for clarity, the nervous system is always listening in, right? And um, if the nervous system takes over, then it's then we just haven't got enough doors left open to cognitively, consciously override that. And, uh, I use the bucket analogy for the nervous system because it's a good one. It's very simple. So the nervous system is the empty bucket. The water in the bucket is the stress, the, how much that nervous system engages. The fuller the bucket, the less doors we have open, the less chance of a mindful, rational, and this is important, self-regulated response. The more chance of an emotional, potentially irrational, uh, dysregulated, and most important word here, reflexive response. When our buckets get full, we don't think about it. We just do it. This notion that somehow the dog is learning from feedback all the time in the moment, a lot of the time we just do stuff, right? So this is the emotional experience. And the good thing is those references will be applied, applicable to the client as well. And I use this term alignment. So I'm just trying to find some alignment, uh, that middle ground like, between the carer's needs and the dog's needs. And that's where I want to explore. For far too long, we've pulled the dog over to human need. I don't want you doing that. I need you to come to the beach with me. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Um, and you're right what you said, Ian, because um, actually a lot of the clients are putting themselves in situations that is also very stressful for them. So I always start my consults by asking my clients, how do you feel about stuff? I like to use that word feel because we feel stuff. Like, right? How do you feel when Rover's doing that? And they'll say, well, it's embarrassing. I feel guilty. I feel sad. I feel, and they give me an idea then a little bit about how much of their, um, I call it being available, right? So we, we have to be available to the truth of another, but we can only be available if we're allowing our brain to be in a cognitively reappraising state. So in other words, if you were telling me something, Ian, about you and your experience <clears throat> and my own nervous system is elevating, I can't truly be elevated. I can't truly be available to you now, which is hard, right? Because when we think about how polarizing a lot of stuff is, politics, religion, it's hard to be available to the truth of another sometimes when your own belief system is being challenged, right? So I need to listen from the client about what their truth is, their truth, um, uh, through that because of their belief system, what they believe is going on, how they feel about stuff. The next thing I'll discuss then with them in a neutral way is about the emotional experience and about these using these analogies. So I can say to them then, wow, your bucket must have been a bit full. You must be, your bucket must get full. In fact, I wouldn't mind betting your bucket's filling as soon as you step foot outside that door, right? And they're like, my God, it is. In fact, my bucket starts filling when I finish my coffee and think, shit, I've got to take the dog out for a walk. Uh, and I said, right, so we need to give you some relief. Yeah, God, I need relief. Good, great. Uh, and then using the doors of the brain analogy, um, because quite often, you know, clients will say to me, and we can make a bit of a light of this, but somebody will say something to them when they're in the street about the dog, right? Your dog should be muzzled, your dog should be. And it's only later that they think, oh, I wish I'd said this to them. I wish I'd said that to them. And I said, well, that's the doors of the brain, right? Because your doors are closing rapidly now. You can't think straight right now. Because we can always think of something really cool to say half an hour later, right? Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> So now we're bringing the client in and then it, and then then I can talk about Rover 
because now I have a shared experience now. So then I can say, what do you think Rover's feeling then? What do you think Rover's going? What do you think Rover's bucket's like? Do you think Rover's got many doors open? Do you think when you do that thing you do? And I always say that, and I always say to them, I'm asking you without judgment. I'm just, we're just asking, you know, when you do that thing that you'd seen on the telly that somebody else had done, do you think that's opening doors for your dog or do you think that's closing them? Do you think that's filling the bucket or do you think it's draining it? And it's just allowing that client to have those moments. Now, does everybody think, oh my God, yeah, I get my dog's most experience? No, because some, and it's only a small number, but their belief system, their value system is pretty fortified around a specific view of what a dog should be. Uh, so we can't necessarily, uh, even if we get our language right, so as I say, language is important to me, calling them carers, writing support plans, not training plans, uh, using the word relief, you know, instead of saying, we're going to reinforce this behavior, I'm going to be like, we're going to do this to give your dog relief. Um, thinking about uh, using the word sensitive instead of reactive or aggressive. Because guess what? They're sensitive to something. That's why, because they're not happy with it or else they wouldn't be doing it. Uh, that can help. But some people, we, we can't necessarily help them at that moment. And um, I've had people that I've worked with and it's I've never seen them again. And that's because you know, I wasn't, they weren't open to this. And I get that. But I've had many who two, three years later, they come back in and they, Andy, I get it now. <clears throat> I had to go through, I had to go through all that. And this is the thing about our own journeys, about us finding our own truths and, um, you know, understanding the psychology behind our judgments is something I'm really passionate about educating about because it stops me from getting too angry because uh, you can sometimes you think, oh, what is wrong with you? you know, can you not see it? Yeah. But I think I, but I, I, so I, that's my own feeling and I have to kind of feel that and think, okay, that's what, but I need to take a breath myself. And the thing about slow thinking as uh, Laura Donaldson, amazing Laura Donaldson, doing a lot of education on slow thinking now. She's done a great webinar on uh, get, helping dogs to slow think more. Because if you think about a dog who sees another dog and they suddenly respond, uh, there's been no thought process there. That nervous system's just jumped in straight away. There's been no, there's been no thought process. Uh, and what we have to really do with that dog, if we think about it, is the, the outcome shouldn't be, right, I'm going to get this dog to do this instead when they see a dog. What we should be learning from is, okay, what can I learn from you as a dog when there's no dog around? That's the first process for me when I'm working with a dog. I think, well, how do you process me? How do you process the environment? Um, how do you do different things so I can learn about your own way of dealing with the world around you? And the outcome has to be the best outcome is where that dog can self-regulate around the trigger, not have to be reliant on loads of cues to get through it, that they can think, right, I can, I can see that, I can process that, and I can do this instead. And if we're going to reinforce anything, let's look for those innate behaviours the dog has already shown us through good observation, and let's support those behaviours instead, because that means they're more likely to have internal value. Uh, and this is, comes down to this slow thinking. This, so we're, we're inviting the dog to reappraise what it feels when it sees a dog. That's what we're asking them to do. We have to do that. But the thing about reappraisal, cognitive reappraisal, is it's, as I say, the brain doesn't like to do it. It's hard work. And mm -hmm. I've spent literally years getting better at it because I'm probably the most judgmental person you'll ever meet, right? 
so uh, and I've uh, and that's who I've been until I started thinking. I think right, I need to be less that. I need to recognize my quick thinking brains made a judgment. Uh, Ian's got very plain walls. I need to put he's put some stuff on his walls. Right, that's my quick thing. Uh, and then uh, and that's a judgment. Right? And then and then but if I sit back, I need to think. Well, hang on, but that's Ian's house. He can he can decorate however he wants. It's not my, for me to say how oh, Ian should decorate us. Sorry, I'm picking up on your walls. But, uh, but that's the point. That's the difference between quick thinking and just giving yourself a moment to think, okay, I'm not you today. You know, uh, and, and same with our clients. And I would say this to any trainers listening, really. It's really difficult, right? Because we, we have a very difficult profession and um, we do it because we care. Uh, and even just by recognizing the psychology of people's judgments can help a little bit because it stops you from think, feeling that everybody's just not getting it. It's just that they might not be ready to get it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can hear as well what, what I can hear there and what, I'd, what I encourage anybody listening right now to go and do is to go and look into Laura Donaldson's work, the slow thinking work. But what I can also hear as well as you talk a lot about... Um, Sarah Fisher's free work, where she's what they what they do is a lot of observation. Uh, they really get to know how the dog responds, to exactly what you were just talking about, but then using it to our advantage. Uh, really working, it's like the the epitome for me at the moment of what's out there when it comes to working with the dog. Just just taking the individual's preferred coping skills and default comfort behaviors and then allowing him to express them rather than trying to pull out all of these ones that we might have a preconceived idea as being good um and so i yeah i really encourage our listeners to go and go do some homework into she's got i'm pretty confident you'll know better than me andy she's got some courses for the public to go and do i'm I know she has. I've, I've gone and sent uh, a fair few of my clients to just go and do them to get to know their dog a little bit better. Um, it's uh, for me, it's a much you're going to get much more reliable if we are going to look at it through that operant model of like we change behavior as a dog trainer, which I'm still going to just circle back to because I know that so many of our audience are going to really find this a challenging concept but if we are going to look at like that lens of results um you're going to get such good much more reliable results if the dog really innately has that comfort level of doing the behavior in the first place and so we we are then tying the emotional needs of that individual to the outcome of the training as well and so we we can start towards marrying these two this model of the emotional experience and the pushback that you've received from beyond the operant is for me invalid because they they can work together it's just it's not a case of that or that they they both must be considered um and i think it's really important that 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 emotional experience is is uh is, is heard from the clients and from the dogs. It's, I know that as a professional, I'm so fortunate to have a team around me and there's days, especially right now, you know, given the current climate, there's days where I just don't want to. 
(laughs) And I know that most days I'm pretty high functioning. I I love just getting shit done, but there's also days where I just can't. And so that's, that's my personal emotional experience. And if I am forgiving of that of myself, then I, I should be affording others, including my dogs and my clients' dogs, the same. Um, we shouldn't be holding them to this robotic out, uh, mm-hmm. expectation and outcome day in, day out. And that's the arbitrary nature of a lot of training that we have to recognize. So we, there has to be an arbitrary element to a point. So if I go to meet a client for a coaching walk, we've agreed to meet to Tuesday, 10 o'clock. It's a very arbitrary time, but we have to do that. I can't just have this completely fluid diary, right? So we have to be there. But I have to be mindful of, okay, we've decided, humans, 10 o'clock Tuesday. When that dog arrives, I have to think, how's Rover doing today? What's mm-hmm. Rover? Yeah. What's his mood? What's how's he? And I need to start that session off really slowly so that Rover can tell me where they're at. In my head, I might have thought, right, we're going to go through back into Peng, into Victoria Park, down onto the seafront and across the beach. That's what we're going to do today, because that's what we did last time, and Rover did really well, right? But today, Rover might be telling me, I'm, I'm struggling with that today, and I think, okay, we're going to go just stick to the back lanes. And we, we just got to be adaptable as much as we can. And I think um, the, uh, the problem is, <clears throat> guys, that there's been... A lot of perceived wisdoms in the dog industry for a long time, many of them based upon kind of discussions of learning from about 40 years ago, to be honest, it is literally that that dated. Uh, And so I get why there's a bit of a challenge to some of this stuff, and, uh, and especially because some of the other methods work, right? Remember, if we're looking at the criteria of results based upon behavioral output, well, why fix it? Because it's working. The question is, is it working for the dog? I think that's the most important thing. And I think especially with dog-dog work, which I do a lot of, or dog-human uh, sensitivities and that, um, <clears throat> it could be the second or third session before I introduce the dog, another dog, for example, because I've got so much to learn from this dog for us. And the biggest thing for me, and, and I would say uh, probably after even three quarters of the dogs I work with, the problem isn't the trigger per se. You know, there's this notion of, oh yeah, so it's distance increasing behaviors and the dogs are scared and all this kind of stuff. It's not what I see. I see a dog who's actually told me through other observations, and this is, I'll come back to Sarah in a second, Ian, because I think I'd like to reference that, but good observations will tell me, right, you're a big olfactory processor or you're bigger hanging back and looking at stuff. When we start to introduce the thing that the dog struggles with, by recognizing that and giving that dog the opportunity to process how they need to first, then the dog moves on so quickly because actually the problem was the fact that in some of those cases that the dog has learned, has a history of learning that the environment thrusts social engagement on them before they're socially processed properly. And and it's such a simple principle, and it's one we take for granted, right? But for some of these dogs who are a little bit more sensitive, they just want to sniff, they want to have a look, they want to do stuff, but they've got dogs running up to them, they've got people trying to touch them all the time. And um, interestingly, we've got little Molly, the foster pup, 
she's a big processor. And I've seen it already with her where, you know, some people don't even ask, right? This isn't your right off. They just walk over, oh, puppy, I'm going to touch you. Um, so when that happens, uh, she is all wriggly bummed and she jumps up for a moment. When they stop, she starts sniffing their trousers, right? And actually, when I can control the situation better and not have people just run up, I say to people, actually, if you could not touch her, but just let her sniff you. And the first thing she does is sniff. Now, let's just think. So she's only 16 weeks. Also on the leash. So I go, she's got a harness, a nice long leash. And we just let her sniff and let her process. And she just does things really well. She's already walking really well on the lead because I'm giving her time to. I've not done any loose leash walking with her. I've not done anything like throwing. I'm just giving her a chance to process the environment. And I do wonder how many of these issues that we have, like jumping up, because guess what? The dogs are being put under social pressure, pulling on the lead because they're not having a chance to process the environment properly. So they don't bother anymore. They're just going through it. We then have to train out of them again when they're adolescents, because we're like, oh my God, the dog jumping up, the dog. So uh, these are all the question marks. Come back to Sarah Fisher. So Ace Connections is the Facebook group everybody must join it, it's great. Uh, ACE is her, is her educational platform, um, animal-centered education. Sarah has been singularly probably the most important influence in my life professionally. Um, and uh, because I've learned the power of good observation. And if you're gonna have a different way of viewing things, we have to re-educate ourselves really, because I went through a very operant phase in my life. I went through a must do it quicker. Got to be fast, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, let me show you how we do this. Yeah, give me the lead, I'll show you all that kind of stuff. This way of thinking is the opposite. It's like, right, we're just gonna, we're gonna chill out. We're gonna see how things go. We're gonna slow things down. We're gonna get your dog to process better. We're gonna see for those little changes in orientation. So how the dog moves, um, where, that, where, 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 where does that dog's shoulders go initially? It's amazing. So if you slow stuff down, the dogs here of harness, longish lead, triggers over there. They look there for a few seconds and then their shoulders are still pointing that way, right? But the client's trying to go that way. So the sh shoulders have to come around. Now they're facing on and we get a reaction, we get a response. If we'd have listened to the dog's shoulders in the first place, we could have gone that way. And they're like, no, I need to orientate away actually here. All these little things that you learn. And Sarah is just amazing at helping people to look at those little, those little movements. Um, it's the small, the big stuff doesn't tell us stuff. The, the barking, the lunging, the growling, the biting, it tells us the dog's stressed, yeah, for sure. But it doesn't tell us much more. How dogs orientate, how they move, um, uh, when I first meet a dog who might have dog issues, issues around dogs, you know, struggles around dogs a little bit, it's interesting to see how they orientate around me. Or well, isn't it interesting how the dog came round to my side and had a sniff of my trousers? legs? So now I'm thinking, right, you don't really like the social engagement, but you do want to process, right, I'm learning something from you. Because um, in my experience, it's multi-species, this stuff. You know, a lot of dogs will, who are socially sensitive will maybe show that to a human they don't know through fun appeasement behaviors and the owners think oh my god my dog loves people because they're jumping up and being silly but in fact the dog's like i'm going to do all this stuff and then when their nervous system comes down they'll go and have a drink out of the water and then they'll come and sniff you and i'm thinking right so we just need to let you know you can sniff first right okay cool but the same dog has the same potential social issues with dogs it's just they're more likely to give an agonistic response to dogs because it kind of works a bit better for them so it's interesting stuff to unpack isn't it? And, think about. and I think the most important thing is um, 
we don't have to ditch our operant tools, right? It's just that it's become that the operant became the toolkit rather than a tool in the toolkit. That's why I see it. Well, that was a lot to <laughs> my brain. I'm just like, yep, 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 yep. I'm trying to process everything right now. Wow. I love, yeah, I love this stuff. For me, it's, uh, I've been working in a really similar way for many, many years, as has Sophie. And for us, it's second nature. Um, and we're always learning and we're always improving, but for yeah. us, it's second nature to, to really take this sort of information on. I, um, I really enjoy this take. I, I completely agree. The, um, the operant model is so important, but it's a tool within a toolkit. Um, I really agree that taking a step back and observing first, making sure that we're working with dogs that are in a, um, in a frame of mind, really without that reflexive state and really in a, in a frame of mind where they can make a decision rather than react is some of the key takeaways but also just just understanding that the unwanted behavior of the animal is um completely appropriate to the animal he didn't think probably didn't think about it too much he's probably just reacting and then we have to ask ourselves choice was it for the dog to be there it's um it's there's a lot of a lot to be reflected on in this episode i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> that we uh that we spoke today andy it's um i i know that you can continue to talk <laughs> in as much in as much detail uh for for many hours and i really hope that we get the opportunity to do this again yeah. um because this is uh this is something that i think can really open the doors for the way people perceive their dog's behavior even just looking at them through a new lens is for me, this episode is so important for that. Just, just opening, opening those doors to the way people perceive their dog, the dogs in their home and the, the family member that they live with. So thank you. It's been great. And I think one thing I just want to really stress to anybody listening is um, a lot of this is, is, is about stepping back a little bit and having more of a philosophical view of behavior, right? Personally, I don't want anybody to, uh, I try hard not to tell people what to think and what to do. I think what I would invite anybody is to just listen to this and see what bits you feel, what, what threads that you feel you can pull from that uh, for your own truth. Because ultimately, we all have our own truth. And I think uh, the big thing for me is about us trying to work out our dog's truth. Uh, you know, the, uh, another species, and they there's a great saying which is the dogs are waiting, and I love that because they're just waiting for us to work it out. And the we've got to have a shift away from the arbitrary shit changing of behaviour because we can, to starting to think about like you said early on in about the why, uh, about why that kind of, and the only way our dogs can tell us stuff is through their behaviour. It's, it's pretty simple as that, really. If, the fact that we don't like that behavior or it upsets us or annoys us or irritates us, that is something we have to recognize in ourselves. And that's important, by the way. We, we, we can't just dismiss how we feel, mm -hmm. but we have to find that alignment. 
you know, finding that middle ground about, okay, where do we build from here then? And um, Kim Brophy, who I do the, the Beyond the Operance with, she has this great term. She doesn't call herself a trainer. She calls herself a family mediator, a family pet mediator. I love that. She's mediating between the needs of the carers and the needs of the dog. Uh, and um, it is an exciting time. And I think we can ask questions, Ian. It's not a case of making absolutes. Nobody has to think, oh, my God, I've got to jump off this cliff edge now. It's just finding our own way through. And, and having the opportunity to talk on platforms like this is great, Ian. And Sophie and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, you're, 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 Wow, thank you, mate. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure, and uh, we'll leave it there. But we really hope to hear you, uh, have you on again, and uh, yeah, great job. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Great to see you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Dog Pod. We know we did. Thank you again to our sponsor, Field Day, for making this season of the Healthy Dog Pod possible. And remember, folks, a healthy dog's a happy dog. Woo! And that was the pod. The Healthy Dog Podcast.